Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When it comes to polarizing figures in Australian history, somewhere up the top of the list you'll find Sir Thomas Blamey. On one hand, he played a large role in extracting Australian troops from North Africa and bringing them home to defend Australian interests. On the other hand, he accused the undertrained and under-equipped 39th Militia Battalion of cowardice because they fell back under the onslaught of highly trained and battle-hardened Japanese troops. It'd be fair to say I'm no fan, but it would be hard to argue that Blamey hasn't played an important role in the overall story of Australian military history. So, in my ongoing attempts to present a professional and balanced podcast, I present unto you all the story of Australia's one and only Field Marshal, Thomas Blamey. Welcome to the Australian Military History Podcast, a podcast dedicated to Australia's servicemen and women covering events, units and personalities from the Boer War through to the modern day. G'day everyone and welcome back. As you can imagine, the story of someone who fought through World War I and then commanded troops through World War II with a stint as Victorian Commissioner of Police is going to be quite a long one. I toyed with the idea of telling this over two episodes, but thought for the sake of continuity and whatnot, I'll do it all in one. However, I reckon I'll break it up into two sections with a definite break in the middle, probably before we start the World War II part, just to give you a convenient point to pause and come back to later. I'll let you know when we get to that bit. So... Buckle up, settle in, have refreshments handy if required, and let's get on with it. Thomas Albert Blamey was born on the 24th of January 1884 near Wagga Wagga, the son of a butcher. He was educated at Wagga's Superior Public School, which begs the question, was there a Wagga Inferior Public School? I digress. From 1899, he was employed as a pupil teacher, assisting those in lower grades, and was an active participant in the school cadets. Four years later, he became an assistant teacher at Fremantle Boys' School, where he maintained his interest in the cadets, building his leadership skills. He attended the Claremont Methodist Church, occasionally preaching, and was offered the post of probationary minister, which is interesting considering some of his predilections in later life, but we'll get to that. The church did tempt him, but he was always more drawn towards military pursuits. In 1906, he saw an advertisement for applications for commissions in the Commonwealth Cadet Force. Applicants were required to submit to an examination, and out of all the participants from across the country, Blamey placed third. So he obviously had a natural affinity with military matters. He was appointed lieutenant on the administrative and instructional staff in November, and was posted to Melbourne. He was a keen soldier and threw himself into his role, continuing to improve his knowledge of all things military. On 8th of September 1909, obviously feeling no man should be happy his entire life, He got married to Minnie Carolyn Millard, who was nine years his senior. The pair would have two sons, Charles and Thomas. Charles died in 1932 in a plane crash while serving in the RAAF. Thomas Jr. would go on to serve in the second AIF under his father. In 1910, Blamey was transferred to the Australian Military Force as captain. The AMF had been established upon the recommendations of Lord Kitchener after his tour of Australia in the early 1900s. It was primarily an administrative body 
which oversaw the training of young boys and militia units. Many of the other officers of the AMF would go on to become the core of the staff of the AIF in World War I, as discussed in Episode 1 on Brudnell White. In 1912, he gained entry to the Staff Officer Training Course at the Staff College at Quetta in India. This was a competitive selection with applicants from across the Empire, so it was no small feat to be accepted. According to the Commandant, Blamey arrived uneducated in a military sense, and that's worth giving further consideration to. From that statement, you can determine that many of the other attendees must have had some kind of military knowledge, either growing up with high-ranking families or attending prestigious boarding schools throughout the Empire. Blamey threw himself into his studies, and in late 1913, he graduated with a B pass. His commandant did have something else to say about him. Military knowledge wasn't the only thing he was lacking when he arrived. Apparently, he, quote, is not gifted with large amounts of tact, but is not conspicuously devoid of that very necessary quality, unquote. I take that as meaning that tact was not a natural part of his makeup but he could use it when necessary. This would come in handy on some occasions during World War II. After graduating from Quetta, Blamey went to England in 1914 to gain further experience in staff work. He was still in England, working in the war office at the outbreak of World War I. During the opening months of the war, he worked in the intelligence branch, preparing summaries for the King and Lord Kitchener. When the Australian Imperial Force was landed in Egypt, Blamey was sent to meet them and became a General Staff Officer, 3rd grade, in intelligence. Interestingly, on the ship taking him from England to Egypt, he had Colonel Harry Chevelle for company. Chevelle would go on to lead the Desert Mounted Column from 1916 to the end of the war, and stand alongside Monash as the two great Australian generals of the war. Blamey took part in the landing at Gallipoli on the 25th of April 1915 as part of Major General Sir William Bridges' 1st Division Headquarters alongside Brudnell White. When a message was received from Colonel Mackay of the 2nd Brigade that reinforcements were needed at 400 Plateau, Blamey was ordered forward to assess this situation. Dodging the Turkish fire, he moved up and surveyed the area and confirmed that that was where the reinforcements should be sent. During those first weeks, there wasn't a great deal for an intelligence officer to do. The confused nature and regular changes to the front line kind of limited the scope of operations a bit, and in reality, during that phase, obtaining an intimate knowledge of the enemy took a back seat to merely securing a position within the ridges. But as things began to settle and a kind of rhythm settled over the peninsula, a bit of knowledge of the lay of the land was beneficial. Of particular interest was a group of Turkish artillery guns somewhere in the vicinity of the olive grove. These guns had been putting down a harassing fire towards the beach, but the Anzacs had been unable to silence them. The Turks' expertise at camouflage meant the Allied artillery and ships didn't know exactly where to fire. So, on the night of 13th of May, Blamey led a patrol in behind the Turkish lines. Apart from Blamey, the party consisted of Sergeant J. Will and Bombardier A. Orchard. The three men approached Pine Ridge, and unfortunately for them, a patrol of eight Turks also approached Pine Ridge at the same time. One Turk tried to bayonet Bombardier Orchard, but Blamey shot the Turk with his revolver. During the following skirmish, six Turks were killed, and Blamey figured the guns could wait because no doubt the noise of the fight would attract quite a bit of attention and it was a good time to be somewhere else. He was mentioned in dispatches for this action. For his actions on 400 Plateau and on the 13th of May, it's obvious that Blamey was not short on a bit of personal courage. He was willing to take whatever risk the job entailed and remain cool under pressure. So, you know, credit where credit is due. His actions over the couple of months brought him some notice and on the 21st of July 1915, 
he was given a staff job as a general staff officer, grade 2, along with a temporary promotion to lieutenant colonel. On 2nd of August, he joined the staff of the newly formed 2nd Division, which was currently finalising its training in Egypt as assistant adjutant and quartermaster general. But when the 2nd Division sailed for Gallipoli, Blamey was not on board. He had just had an operation, a small procedure around the freckle region, to sort out a hemorrhoidal issue. But he recovered quickly, and by 25th of October, he was back on the peninsula with the 2nd Division. By this stage, though, the Gallipoli campaign was beginning its end. The August offensive had failed dismally, the new landing at Suvla Bay had ground to a halt, and General Sir Ian Hamilton had been recalled to England and was replaced by General Sir Charles Munro. Munro surveyed the scene and saw the futility of it and recommended withdrawal. Winston Churchill, one of the main instigators of the campaign, and never someone short of a cutting remark, said of Munro, he came, he saw, he capitulated. Back in England, Kitchener received Munro's report, which caused some confusion because the reports he'd been receiving from Hamilton were completely at odds with Munro's assessment. In November, Kitchener himself arrived on the peninsula and saw two things almost immediately. One, the Anzacs had done an incredible job just to hold on to their precarious position. Two, it was a waste of resources and manpower to keep them there. The evacuation was ordered, and in December, Blamey left Gallipoli along with the 2nd Division. Throughout the rapid restructuring of the AIF during the first months of 1916, Blamey remained at 2nd Division headquarters and sailed to France with the division. But once in France, there was a reshuffling of senior staff appointments and Blamey once again found himself in the 1st Division, this time as a General Staff Officer, Grade 1. This placed him in a pivotal role for the planning of Australia's first full-scale battle of the war, Pozieres. It was here that Blamey's particular talent for planning began to show through. He visited British divisions, which were already fighting on the Somme, to gather as much information on what had worked and what hadn't, and then quickly circulated a memorandum throughout the division prior to their attack. Whether or not his memorandum had much effect on the conduct of the opening attacks will probably never be known, but it does show his belief that you need to gather as much intelligence as possible to give the troops the best chance of success. But like everyone else at Pozieres, Blamey was soon to be confronted with utter confusion as the Germans concentrated their artillery on the recently captured village. In August, with the 1st Division's second rotation to the Pozieres front, Blamey noted that the mapping of the area was not clear, and he had to admit, quote, vagueness both to our own and hostile positions, unquote. Hardly an optimal situation. He set about trying to sort it out by sending out intelligence officers, but in the maelstrom that was Pozieres, no one was ever going to bring any real order to that place. For his part, though, Blamey was awarded the Distinguished Service Order in the 1917 New Year's Honours List. By now, General Birdwood, commander of the AIF, had noticed Blamey's abilities and was considering him for a brigade command. But Blamey had had no real experience in commanding infantry troops, despite his now fairly elevated rank. So, Birdie figured that a bit of time as a battalion commander would give him some valuable insights into the command of soldiers. Technically, going from a GSO-1 back to a mere battalion commander was probably considered a backward step. But given Blamey's preference for commanders with battle experience during World War II, which we'll get to, it's quite possible that Blamey agreed with the idea. Either that or Birdwood had explained it to him and brought him around. On 3rd of December 1916, Blamey took command of the 2nd Infantry Battalion. Then, because he was the highest ranking battalion commander, on 28th of December, he became acting commander of the 1st Infantry Brigade. At no time during his couple of weeks as a battalion commander did Blamey command troops in battle and neither did he command at brigade level. 
On 9th of January, he went on leave. By the time he returned, the whole plan to have him made a brigade commander fell over for a typical military stuff around. You see, General Headquarters of the British Army got wind that Blamey had graduated the Staff College. Because of this, he was, and always should be, a Staff Officer. The only way a Staff Officer would be sent to command a frontline unit would be if they had failed as a Staff Officer, which Blamey had not. So Blamey went back to his GSO-1 role, but with a promotion to Colonel. Shall we have a wee diversion here? Anyone notice the bit about Staff Officer graduates not being frontline commanders unless they failed at Staff Officering? Anyone who's even had a cursory glance at British Staff Officers during World War I would find this difficult to believe. No doubt there were many competent and even some brilliant Staff Officers, but there was also an overabundance of absolute plonkers. General Goff springs to mind, as does General Hunter Weston at Cape Hellas. Some of these senior Staff Officers presided over some completely ballsed-up operations, costing the lives of hundreds or thousands, and mostly they got promoted for their troubles. Makes you wonder just how badly a staff officer graduate needed to stuff up to be sent to a battalion command. But back to Blamey. For some reason, the records relating specifically to Tom for much of the first half of the 1917 go a bit cold. He was mentioned in dispatches twice, once in January, another in June, but that's about it. There is a document which I stumbled across while trying to see what he was up to during this time. It has nothing to do with Blamey, but I wanted to share with you one of these little nuggets you occasionally come across when you're skimming through official documents. In among some documents from the commander of the 1st Division is Routine Order Number 33, 9th of February 1917. It covers such things as the Officer of the Day, a note relating to delivery of parcels for men killed, and the details of a General Court Martial, who's required to attend and where and when. And then, after that serious matter, and tacked on to the end of the official routine order, is this, quote, Lost, on road from Serapium to 6th Battalion Camp at Forward Line of Defence. A pair of field glasses. Finder, please return to Brigadier General J.K. Forsyth, 2nd Infantry Brigade. End quote. I wonder if poor old Brigadier General Forsyth ever got his field glasses back. Sorry for that diversion, it just tickled my funny bone for a bit. So anyway, fair to say that during the first half of 1917, Blamey was beavering away at his job as GSO-1. Then, on the 27th of August 1917, he was given the acting command of the 2nd Brigade until 4th of September. The Brigade was again resting for this period, so Blamey still hadn't commanded a frontline unit. And then, in September, he was admitted to hospital with vomiting and coughing. He was diagnosed with psoriasis, a debilitating autoimmune disease, and was evacuated to a hospital in England for treatment. He returned to France as the GSO-1 of 1st Division in November 1917. Whatever he did during 1917 obviously caught the attention of the right people because in 1918 New Year's Honours List he was made a companion of St Michael and St George, a CMG. As far as the First World War was concerned, 1918 was the year Blamey really shone. With the bringing together of all five Australian divisions into the one corps, Blamey was promoted to Brigadier General of the General Staff. BGGS, and became Chief of Staff to the Corps Commander, General John Monash. It was these two men, working together, which cemented the Australian Army's reputation throughout the second half of 1918. Probably the best way of explaining how their relationship worked is to hand over to none other than Sir John Monash, who after the war wrote of Blamey, quote, No reference to the staff work of the Australian Corps during the period of my command would be complete without a tribute to the work and personality of Brigadier General T.A. Blamey, my Chief of Staff. He possessed a mind cultured far above the average, widely informed, alert and prehensile. 
He had an infinite capacity for taking pains. A Staff College graduate, but not on that account a pedant. He was thoroughly versed in the technique of staff work and in the minutiae of all procedures. He served me with exemplary loyalty, for which I owe him a debt of gratitude which cannot be repaid. Our temperaments adapted themselves to each other in a manner which was ideal. He had an extraordinary capability for self-effacement, posing always and conscientiously as the instrument to give effect to my policies and decisions. Really helpful whenever his advice was invited, he never intruded his own opinions, although I know that he did not always agree with me. Some day the orders which he drafted for the long series of history-making operations on which we collaborated will become a model for staff colleges and schools for military instruction. They were accurate, lucid in language, perfect in detail, and always an exact interpretation of my intention. It was seldom that I thought that my orders or instructions could have been better expressed, and no commander could have been more exacting than I was in the matter of the use of clear language to express thought. Blamey was a man of inexhaustible industry and accepted every task with placid readiness. Nothing was ever too much trouble. He worked late and early and set a high standard for the remainder of the core staff of which he was the head. The personal support which he accorded to me was of a nature of which I could always feel the real substance. I was able to lean on him in times of trouble, stress and difficulty, to a degree which was an inexpressible comfort to me. End quote. As a quick aside, Blamey's orders were indeed included in the units of study at staff colleges in the decades following World War I. The plans he worked on were mostly the Battle of Hamel in July and Amiens in August. Hamel was the prototype for Monash's ideas of how an offensive should be fought. Blamey, who had maintained an interest in the technological innovations throughout the war, was greatly impressed by the new generation of tanks and pushed for their inclusion en masse at Hamel. With complete success, they could get on with the planning the much larger attack at Amiens on 8th of August 1918. Monash deservedly receives the recognition for the planning brilliance of these two attacks, but without a staff officer of Blamey's calibre to bring it all together and do much of legwork, they may not have been as successful as they were. From Monash's account, you'd be forgiven for thinking that Blamey was a joy to work with. But a comment from AIF Commander Birdwood gives another perspective. He said of Blamey, quote, an exceedingly able little man, though by no means a pleasing personality. End quote. Birdwood was known to be a chirpy, happy sort of a chap, so whether Blamey's more dour approach just rubbed him the wrong way, or whether Birdie picked up on some less savoury personality traits is unsure. But there is a chance that Blamey may have been beginning to display behaviours which would come to haunt him in the next couple of decades. By the end of the war, Blamey added a companion of the bath to his list of titles and had been mentioned in dispatches seven times. Blamey played a large part in organising the repatriation of Australian troops and by 20th October 1919, six years after leaving, he finally returned to Australia. He was posted to Army Headquarters in Melbourne as Director of Military Operations. The following year, he was made Deputy Chief of the General Staff. While in that role, he worked hard with Lieutenant Colonel Williams of the Flying Corps to establish the RAAF. But it has to be said that it took a bit to get the RAAF off the ground, so to speak, and it was still a work in progress when he left for London as the Australian representative on the Imperial General Staff, a most esteemed position, on the 1st of November 1922. While hobnobbing in London, he mainly focused on establishing a naval base at Singapore as a bulwark of defence for Australia from anyone who may choose that path. Little did he know exactly what the impact of that would be in 20 years' time. In June of 1923, the Chief of the General Staff, Major General Sir Bruno White, who you'll no doubt remember from episode one of this podcast, retired, leaving the position open. 
Everyone thought Blamey would be a shoe-in for the position, but nay. A number of senior Australian officers had been keeping an eye on Blamey's rapid rise through the staff officer ranks. Many of these officers had commanded troops on the front line at battalion and brigade level, something which Blamey still had never done. Strangely enough, it was Major General Victor Selheim who brought the matter to a head. I say strangely enough because, like Blamey, Selheim had never commanded troops in battle either. In fact, he'd never really commanded anything. At the beginning of the war, he was the assistant adjutant and general quartermaster of the 1st Division, but Major General Bridges couldn't stand the bloke, and so shuffled him off to the Australian Intermediate Base. This would eventually evolve into AIF Admin Headquarters. But by that stage, Selheim was back in Australia as Adjutant General in charge of raising reinforcements. Selheim wrote a letter to the Minister of Defence and protested the prospect of blaming being given the role over more experienced officers, himself included, apparently. In the end, the position went to General Harry Chevelle, hero of the Sinai-Palestine campaign. But what of old Tom? Well, they created a new post for him, Second Chief of the General Staff, and there he remained until, in 1925, Sir Stanley Argyle, the Victorian Chief Secretary, offered Blamey the post of Chief Commissioner of Police. Blamey took up the offer and left the regular army to take up his new role. He transferred to the militia to keep his hand in with military affairs. Now, this is a military history podcast, so the events from Blamey's retirement from the regular army to when he rejoined for World War II kind of falls outside the scope of the podcast. But some events do speak loudly about the character of Thomas Blamey. So we will give them a slight coverage before heading on to part two of this episode. His time as Commissioner of Police was dogged by controversy. First up, by this stage, Blamey liked a bit of a drink. Nothing wrong with that. And also had a penchant for the kind of loving you pay for by the hour. Nothing particularly wrong with that either. The problem is, he was Commissioner of Police, and consorting with prostitutes was a criminal offence. Which, to me, shows a lack of possibly the most important personality trait. Integrity. I mean, how many former soldiers in the 1920s would have been hauled up in front of a judge for doing the same thing? This first came to light in October 1925. Police raided a brothel, and as they burst into one of the rooms, the gentleman client waved a police badge. It was Blamey's. The badge was seized and found its way back to the Australia Club, where Blamey reassured everyone. Knowing that this would be a bad look, he leant on his good friend, Stan Savage, founder of Legacy, among other things, and got him to write a statement stating that he had been drinking with Savage that night, and so it couldn't have been him. The trouble was, the statement was only half true. He had been drinking with Savage earlier in the evening. But there was plenty of time for him to get to the brothel afterwards. So not only did he hold his own integrity cheaply, he got a mate to compromise his own integrity to get him off the hook. As far as I'm concerned, there's nothing worse than someone who would do that. In the end, he claimed he had loaned the badge to a friend, but wouldn't say who that friend was. But that still raises the question, what kind of police commissioner would loan his police badge to anyone? Anyway, during his tenure with Victorian Police, he did make a wide range of improvements, such as raising the number of women in the force, overhauling the promotion system, and establishing a licensing branch. For his efforts, he was created a Knight Bachelor in 1935, but the following year, controversy struck again. He was in the company of a couple of working girls who were involved in an armed hold-up. During the investigation, under the pretense of protecting the reputations of the two women, Blamey gave a false statement, probably more to protect himself after being caught a second time. Pressure was applied, and he was forced to resign on 9th of July 1936. So I reckon that's as good a place as any to pause and have a bit of an interlude. Feel free to continue listening, but also feel free to just stop, go off and do many more important things, and pick it up again in a day or so if that is your desire.
we're back. Did you have a nice break? For me, personally, it's been a total of about 30 seconds. Enough time to grab a coffee and take care of things. So, onwards. In 1937, after nearly four decades in the military, Blamey relinquished command of the 3rd Militia Division, which he had held for six years and went on the unattached list. He did, however, retain the support of many of the country's top leaders, one Robert Menzies in particular. He became a radio broadcaster following international affairs and was appointed chairman of the government's manpower committee, which as best as I can figure was all about preparing for the creation of a second AIF if the need should ever arise. On 5th of April 1939, Blamey married for the second time, his first wife having died, and life just plodded along. Until September 1939, which as we all know, is when World War II started, in Europe anyway. Blamey was quickly squeezed back into his uniform and was promoted to Lieutenant General on 13th of October and given command of the newly formed 6th Division. In World War II, the Australian divisions started at 6. The five divisions of World War I would remain distinct and their reputations intact in the event of the new divisions not coming up to scratch. In early 1940, the 7th Division was raised, and the two divisions were joined into a corps. This corps, known as I-Corps, required a corps commander, and that job was given to Blamey. Although only a single corps at this stage, it was basically command of the 2nd AIF that he had been handed. In choosing his brigade commanders, Blamey had a preference for commanders with proven experience from World War I, including his good mate, Stan Savage. This didn't go down too well with many of the graduates of Australia's officer training school, Duntroon, who felt that the old blokes still had their heads stuck in 1918 and didn't have an understanding of the technological developments of the last 20 years. These graduates probably had some justification. The militia, which most of these old blokes had commanded during the interwar years, was far from a finely honed fighting machine. But Blamey knew them and knew that they could be trusted in battle. As things went on, the command structure evened itself out with a pretty good balance of steady older hands and more educated younger minds, but there was always a rivalry between them. Blamey landed in Palestine on 20th of June 1940. The 16th Brigade had already arrived and the 17th followed not long after them. The 18th Division was diverted to France but arrived too late to take part in the fighting that left the British Army on the beaches of Dunkirk. Two days after arriving, Blamey reported to the British Commander-in-Chief, Middle East, General Wavell, and set about finding something for the Australians to do. Wavell had a large offensive plan against the Italians in Libya for December. At this stage, there were no German forces in North Africa, so it was just the Poms versus the Italians. Blamey agreed to attach the 6th Division to Wavell's Western Desert Force, where they would take part in the first battles of the war against the town of Bardia and then on to Benghazi. So far, so good for Blamey and the new diggers. But then came Greece and Crete. Due to events which I covered in the episode on Thermopylae, Wavell ordered Blamey to take I Corps to Greece. Blamey had been around long enough to know that this wasn't going to end well, but despite his reservations he kept quiet, and the only disagreement he raised with Wavell was in relation to which division he would send. Wavell reckoned the 7th should go first, and then the 6th should follow, but Blamey felt that with the experience gained at Bardi and Benghazi, the 6th division was the better option with the 7th to follow up. Blamey couldn't be held responsible for what would happen in North Africa while he and the 6th and 7th divisions were in Greece he left behind the 9th Division to hold the ground taken from the Italians. What happened was, Erwin Rommel arrived with the Africa Corps and smashed their way back to Tobruk. But that's another story. With all the confidence in the world of their eventual success, Blamey scoured the beaches for likely evacuation points soon after his arrival. This would soon prove to be a wise bit of forethought. The Greek campaign was a disaster, and pretty soon those evacuation beaches would be in full swing. 
evacuating the Australian, New Zealand and British troops that have been thrown into a hopeless cause. Not quite done with hopeless causes though, it was decided that these men would be evacuated to the island of Crete. I'll be covering that battle in a future episode so I won't go into it here, but spoiler alert, the defenders were soon been evacuated from Crete as well. No one can blame him for the outcome of the Greek and Crete campaigns. In fact, he knew they were lost causes, but still gave it everything he had. But, in the evacuation of Greece, his integrity was again called into question. With the troops on the beaches being rowed out to the waiting ships, one last plane was available for the removal of the senior officers. There was one spare seat. But, who to give it to? A list of officers' names were read out to Blamey one by one. Each was dismissed by Blamey for various reasons. He's needed to coordinate the evacuation, or he's needed to carry out demolitions, etc. All the way down to when there was but one officer left. Ah, well, you might as well give it to young Tom, Blamey said. The young Tom in question was young Thomas Blamey, his son. Well, may you say, he's just a father protecting his son, as any father would. But the point is, Blamey Senior was responsible for many people's sons. And by eliminating any of those on the list above his own son, he condemned those other sons to death or capture. But any father would have done the same in that position, you may say again. But no. The commander of the New Zealand forces, one Bernard Freyberg VC, had a son on Crete under his command. He too had an opportunity to save his son over others. But he realised that with the position of commander, he couldn't show preference to his own son, and so he chose an officer of more importance to the overall operation. Again, to me, that's a big black mark against Blamey. So anyway... After bailing out of Greece, while the evacuated forces headed for another desperate stand at Crete, Blamey was ordered to return to Cairo. When he lobbed in Cairo, he was told that he'd been appointed Deputy Commander-in-Chief Middle East. This was because some heads had rolled during the Greek fiasco, but also because of practicality. Australian forces were now spread through the Middle East and the Mediterranean theatres. It made overall command easier to have an Australian high up in the pecking order to coordinate the AIF efforts. At that point, he had the 6th Division on Crete, about to bear the brunt of the German invasion. The 7th Division was in Syria, operating against the Vichy French, and the 9th was still holding out in its valiant defence of Tobruk. Each battleground held its own concerns. On 20th May 1941, the Germans attacked Crete. Initially, the defenders exacted a heavy toll on the German paratroopers, but the Germans just kept coming, and an unfortunate communication breakdown handed them the main airfield on the island. Once they had that, they could fly in ground troops, and the game was up. Blamey's only option was to order another evacuation. In Syria, command of operations was handed to General First Baron Henry Maitland Wilson. With Blamey's promotion to Deputy CIC, Icor was left without a permanent commander. Blamey wasn't sure that his tenure on the deputy job was particularly strong, and so he didn't fully wish to relinquish the Icor command. Wilson tended to command from about 100 miles away from the front, and Blamey felt that he wasn't maintaining proper control of the situation from all the way back there. He had to do something to ensure better control closer to the front. So he bit the bullet and officially appointed General Labrack to I Corps Command and Major General Tubby Allen to command the 7th Division. In doing so, he placed Labrack between Wilson 100 miles back and Allen on the front line, and a successful conclusion to the Syrian campaign soon followed. On 24th of September 1941, Blamey was promoted to the rank of full general, being only the fourth Australian to achieve this rank, alongside Chevelle, Monash and White. It was also at this time which Blamey did one of the things for which he should be roundly praised. The 9th Division in Tobruk were beginning to wear out. They'd lived on a meagre diet in flea-infested dugouts in the blistering heat 
subject to air and artillery fire during the days and offensive patrolling at night for eight months. It was beginning to show. They were exhausted and in serious need of relief. The British High Command reckoned they should hang in there, but Blamey put his foot down and stood firm. He insisted that the 9th Division be relieved and given sufficient rest prior to being thrown back into the fray. He even did what few people in history had managed to do successfully. He defied Winston Churchill. Winnie was adamant that the 9th Division should stay in Tobruk to allow British units to be deployed elsewhere. Blamey more or less told him where he could shove it. Bravo, that man. So, for standing up for the interests of Australian troops, that's a big tick on the positive side of the ledger. Later, when commenting on Blamey's time in the Middle East, Wavell said of him, quote, probably the best soldier we had in the Middle East. Not an easy man to deal with, but a very satisfactory man to deal with, end quote. On the other side of the coin was General Auchinleck, who said he found Blamey likeable, but he wasn't a general I should have chosen to command an operation. So even in the British High Command, Blamey divided opinion. Winnie Churchill didn't take his rebuff from Blamey lying down. He raised the possibility of asking the Australian government to recall Blamey to Australia, no doubt hoping a more compliant man would fill his place. As it turned out, events conspired to make that request unnecessary and provided another poke in the eye for Churchill. The Japanese kicked off their war in the Pacific in December 1941 and suddenly, at least to Australian eyes, there were much higher priorities than North Africa. Australia itself was threatened. PM John Curtin requested the release of the AIF from Africa to come to the defence of their homeland. Churchill refused. Curtin said, we're doing it anyway, but a compromise was reached. The 9th Division would stay behind. This was basically because, after Tobruk, the 9th Division was buggered and wouldn't be of much use against the Japanese for quite a while. They could rest and recuperate North Africa while appeasing British demands for Australian involvement in that area. So Blamey returned to Australia to take on the role of Commander-in-Chief of the Australian Military Forces. He faced a situation no other Australian commander had ever faced, the very real threat of invasion of the Australian mainland. With the AIF still in the Mediterranean, the only forces available to him initially were militia units. These units were only partially trained, and as all the best equipment had been sent with the AIF overseas, the militia only had access to outdated equipment. While he was attempting to sort all that out, the American general, Douglas MacArthur, fresh from his arse-kicking in the Philippines, arrived in Australia and... As usual, the Australian government handed over supreme control of the war effort to a foreign general. With MacArthur as Supreme Commander, Southwest Pacific, Blamey was appointed Commander of the Allied Land Forces, basically MacArthur's deputy. Blamey set up his headquarters in Melbourne, and MacArthur set up his headquarters in Brisbane. For anyone outside of Australia, that means that the two headquarters were 1,700 kilometres away from each other. Just to make things more ridiculous, there were very few Americans at Blamey's headquarters and even fewer Australians in MacArthur's. This arrangement was never going to work. Blamey reorganised the defence structure of Australia, creating 1st and 2nd Army, under Generals Mackay and Bennett respectively, and a corps in Western Australia. General Rowell was given command of I Corps, which he was to take to New Guinea immediately. The Battle of the Coral Sea in May 1942 spelt the end of any real threat of a seaborne invasion of Port Moresby. But codebreakers had intercepted messages which showed the Japanese intended an overland attempt via the Kokoda Track. The 7th Division was eventually sent to Port Moresby to bolster the militia forces already in the area. Soon, the 7th Div was fighting off the Japanese landing at Milne Bay, the first successful repulsion of a Japanese amphibious assault. Meanwhile, the militia were going at it hammer and tongs with the Japanese at the village of Kokoda. Outnumbered, poorly equipped and with excessively long supply lines, the men of the 39th Militia Battalion put up a stubborn resistance against the battle-hardened Japanese, 
but was soon left with little choice but to undertake a fighting withdrawal. The spirit and tenacity displayed by the 39th at Kokoda and Isturava should have earned them commendation from the highest ranking Australian officer, but it was not to be. With a complete lack of understanding of the terrain and numbers of the enemy, MacArthur decided that the Australians weren't putting up enough of a fight. Frighteningly, one of the things he used to reach this conclusion was the Australians' casualties list. Basically, not enough were being killed. In essence, MacArthur felt that if you weren't losing thousands of lives, you just weren't trying hard enough. It couldn't be that the troops on the ground could see that a particular position was about to be overrun and used military common sense to pull back, reset and face the enemy again. Unreal. So, disturbed by the Australians' apparent lack of fighting spirit, MacArthur told Curtin to send Blamey to New Guinea to sort it out. This served two purposes for MacArthur. Hopefully, it would reinvigorate the Australians' martial spirit, and it got Blamey out of his way and left him free to do what he wanted without any real interference. Although Blamey stood up to Churchill, he couldn't stand up to MacArthur and his own Prime Minister, and so off to New Guinea he went, arriving on the 23rd of September 1942. He met with Rao, and although it's not exactly clear what was said, Chances are, it wasn't a love-in. Raoul was apparently petulant and uncooperative. Hardly surprising, though, when you consider his boss had just lobbed and accused him of not doing a particularly good job, even though that boss had not previously set foot in the country and had no idea of the conditions. Raoul was also one of the officers who had witnessed Blamey's manoeuvring to get his son on that plane back in Greece. So, you know, no love lost between those two. On 20th of September, Blamey sacked Raoul, the first of many heads that would soon roll. With the Japanese having been stopped within sight of Port Moresby, the Australians began to push them back over the Kokoda track, but not fast enough for MacArthur's liking. Blamey obviously felt he was fighting for his own career now, and so to keep the American happy, he sacked Brigadier Potts of the 21st Brigade, and then Major Allen of the 7th Division. In November, Blamey's most notorious incident occurred. With the 21st Brigade, which had taken on the brunt of the Japanese invasion, conducted a textbook fighting withdrawal and eventually defeated the Japanese, they were called up on parade and Blamey addressed them. Thinking they were about to receive their commander's gratitude for a tough job well done, they were instead berated by Blamey. Although no official record of his rant was kept, there were plenty of diggers who remembered the words, the rabbit who runs is the one who gets shot. He was basically telling them they were cowards. Murmurs ran through the assembled troops and there was anger building, but... Disciplined troops that they were, none fell out of the ranks. Blamey's staff later claimed that the troops had misinterpreted his meaning, but in my humble opinion, it's unlikely that a few hundred men would all reach the same misinterpretation. The sackings of the commanders and his rant at the 21st Brigade sowed a lot of contempt for Blamey among the troops, and to this day, it is probably one of the incidents which most people hold against him. It certainly calls into question his understanding of how to command men. You could hardly imagine Monash abrading his troops in that fashion, or for that matter, having no appreciation of the ground and conditions which those troops had been fighting. Notwithstanding all that, the war continued on. The Japanese had been forced back to the north coast of Papua, where heavy fighting developed around Gona, Buna and Senananda. This phase of the war actually gave Blamey a bit of an upper hand in his personal battle of egos against MacArthur. The Australians took on the tougher fight at Gona and Buna, while the Americans were given the slightly easier, in theory, task of taking Senananda. Despite suffering heavy casualties, the Australians achieved their goal while the Americans struggled. It was only with Australian assistance that San Ananda fell. Blamey was able to say to MacArthur that he would prefer Australian troops over Americans because he knew that at least the Australians would fight. Given the recent events, MacArthur couldn't really argue, but he did ensure that American troops would never be under Australian command again 
by reorganising the Pacific Task Force and using American troops to push to the Philippines and the island hopping campaign while keeping the Australians in Papua. There's nothing quite like an American general's tantrum, eh? So the general situation for 1943 looks something like this. The Japanese have been pushed back across Papua New Guinea and the southeastern toe of the island was pretty much under control. But the Japanese still held strong positions on the Huon Peninsula, New Britain and Bougainville. This gave them observation of the sea lanes required for MacArthur to realise his goal of returning to the Philippines. Any major naval force travelling that route would be subject to air attack from these positions. So this basically set up the strategic plan for 1943. The Japanese had to be cleared, and as task force commander, it was up to Blamey to see it happen, as MacArthur still had his hands full in the Solomon Islands. Blamey devised a series of battles to reclaim territory from the Japanese bit by bit, which he launched in May 1943. The first target was Salamoa, which sat on the southern end of the bay, forming the southern side of the Huon Peninsula. From May to August, the 3rd Division, and then the 5th Division, pushed forward towards Salamoa, which eventually fell on the 11th of September. On 4th of September, just a bit further up the coast, the 9th Division, fresh from its epic involvement at the Battle of El Alamein, had been returned to Australia, reinforced, and now joined the Pacific Campaign with an attack on Leh. Although their landing was unopposed from the ground, the Japanese did attack from the air, causing numerous casualties. They advanced as far as the Busu River, which they were unable to cross due to the lack of equipment and the Japanese soldiers on the other side. The 7th Division was flown into Nadzab, after the US 503rd Parachute Infantry Regiment and two guns from the Australian 2nd 4th Field Regiment dropped in and seized the airfield. After some hard fighting and a tragic accident which saw a US Liberator bomber crash on takeoff and smash into five trucks carrying the 2nd 33rd Battalion, killing 60 and injuring 90, the 7th Division fought on towards Ley and captured the town on 15th of September, just beating the 9th Division. The fighting then moved to the Huon Peninsula. The 9th Division captured Finchhaven, in September and then Sattelberg in November. The battles of Ley and Huon Peninsula will have episodes of their own, so I haven't got into any detail here. Just be assured that behind the scenes, organising all of this was blamey. But when 1944 rolled around, the strategic situation had been changed and the Americans took over much of the land-based operations under MacArthur's direct command. It was becoming clear that Australian troops would be pushed into a minor role while the Americans pushed on through the Philippines and beyond. With nothing better to do, Blamey joined Prime Minister Curtin on a tour of the US where he met the Joint Chiefs of Staff who wanted to hear from the horse's mouth, so to speak, about how things were going in the Pacific. No doubt Blamey talked up his own involvement, but it must be said he did deserve a lot of the credit for the organisation of the operations throughout 1943. From America, Curtin and Blamey jumped over the pond and visited London. Blamey busied himself talking with Eisenhower and Montgomery and was given an overview of the upcoming D-Day operations. I wonder what he must have thought seeing the scale of the operations compared with the comparatively small operations he'd planned. Did he have any advice for Eisenhower? Was he envious that he wasn't taking part in what would obviously be the biggest operation in the history of warfare? We'll never know, but it's interesting to ponder. While in England, Blamey also spoke with some British commanders about the possibility of a joint British-Australian operation pushing north from Darwin and into the Dutch East Indies, now known as Indonesia. It was a viable proposal which would potentially clear shipping lanes and open the way to Singapore and Malaya, but it never eventuated because MacArthur didn't back it. And neither did Curtin, which rubbed Blamey up the wrong way. It seemed that the Australian Prime Minister was always siding with the American General rather than his own Chief of Staff. There was also tension between the two over the way Blamey ran the army. Blamey was thought to hold a tight grip on all aspects, allowing nothing to be done by subordinates if he didn't have to, even if it was their job. 
He maintained that kind of control was necessary to avoid Australian interests being crushed by American interests. His ego also convinced him that he was the only Australian commander capable of doing so. By early 1945, the Japanese were being pushed back across the islands leading to Japan. All that fighting was being conducted by Americans, while Australian troops were left behind in New Guinea to mop up whatever enemy resistance remained. Blamey and Curtin were back in Australia, and Blamey set to work planning the campaign in Borneo with i MacArthur had decided that i would report directly to him, bypassing Blamey's control over his own troops. Quite rightly, Blamey objected, and as a concession, barely, he was able to place a liaison officer in MacArthur's headquarters. Blamey voiced his doubts over the need for the Borneo operation. After all, the Americans were closing in on Japan. Attacking Borneo wasn't going to affect that battle in any way. But MacArthur advised Curtin that the US Joint Chiefs had ordered the attack. What he failed to mention was that the Joint Chiefs only ordered it after MacArthur himself had told them that the Australian government felt that it was important. In any event, the campaign went ahead and a further 229 Australian lives were lost before Japan surrendered a matter of weeks later. It's kind of astounding the blamey, the man who had successfully stood up to Winston Churchill and the British High Command in relation to the removal of Australian troops from North Africa, couldn't seem to dig his heels in against one American general when it came to preventing the loss of Australian lives on an irrelevant operation. You have to ask why. Was it simply because he didn't have the backing of the PM like he did in North Africa? Or was he wanting to preserve his reputation as a commander? If he was to lose his job so close to the end of the war, he'd have no chance to redeem himself. Either way, the war finished with a victory for the Allies, and when MacArthur took the formal surrender of the Japanese on the deck of the USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay, Blamey was there. He'd also taken the surrender of the Japanese commander in Papua, with a lot less diplomacy than would be expected from someone in his position. An Australian nurse, Sister Una Keast, or Mills as she was known at the time, said that during the ceremony, Blamey was enraged, with his face burning bright red. She felt he was about to have a stroke. Fortunately, he managed to conduct himself better on board the Missouri. Sometimes, when wars end and governments no longer need their top soldiers to win the war for them, the governments will cut those soldiers adrift. This happened to Blamey. Tolerated by the government while there was a war to fight, on 14th of November 1945, Blamey was dismissed from his role as Commander-in-Chief, and on 31st of January 1946, he was formally discharged from the Army after 39 years. Maybe, as some kind of attempted consolation, he was offered honours for himself which he declined, but he did request honours for some of his generals, eventually securing knighthoods for Northcott, Savage, Sturdy, Berryman, Burston, Steele, Stevens and Wooten. A nice gesture, it must be said. After the war, he devoted himself to some business interests and writing his memoirs. In 1950, the then Prime Minister, Bob Menzies, promoted Blamey to the rank of Field Marshal. Blamey was in hospital at the time, and the Field Marshal baton was presented to him in a bedside ceremony on the 16th of September 1950 by the Governor-General. On 27th of May 1951, Blamey suffered a stroke while in the Heidelberg Repatriation Hospital and died. A state funeral was held and it was estimated that a crowd of 250,000 gathered. And so that's the life of Thomas Blamey, a veteran of World War I and II and the only Australian soldier to be promoted to the rank of Field Marshal. I said at the beginning of this episode that I'm no fan, so it's worth revisiting that comment now that I've delved deeper into his life. First of all, there can be no doubt about his personal courage, nor his capacity for hard work. As far as his technical abilities as a commander, I'd say there was probably no one better suited to the job of commander-in-chief during World War II. His apprenticeship, of sorts, under Monash, no doubt, went a long way to creating a competent commander with a good grasp of grand strategy. He was also, up to a point, able to stand up to his superiors. He may have been difficult to like, as many of his contemporaries would point out, 
But as Curtin said when he appointed Blamey, he was seeking a military leader, not a Sunday school teacher. And that's fair enough. So from a soldier point of view, all good. But from a person point of view, well, as I said, in my opinion, integrity is probably the most important trait a person can have. And on that front, you'd have to think Blamey comes up short. Personally, I don't care that he liked to drink and accompany prostitutes. That's quite common among the soldiery. Not, not me, of course, pure as the driven snow I was. But the failure to take responsibility when he was caught out as police commissioner and the fact he made Savage compromise his own integrity definitely rubs me up the wrong way. Then the incident in Greece with securing the last seat for his son? Eh, not great. But the worst black mark against him was his actions in New Guinea, sacking competent officers who had fought well under near impossible conditions and then berating the 21st Brigade while having no understanding of what they had actually achieved. There's no forgiving that. So, for me, I admire him as a soldier, but as a person, I really have no time for him. But it's not my intention, or my place, to tell you what you should think of him. So, this is his story. Make of it what you will. Hope you enjoyed that episode. If so, feel free to leave a comment on the website at australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com or on Instagram under amhpodcast or on Facebook. Also, apparently leaving a review on iTunes helps more people to find the podcast, so it would be very much appreciated if you can head over to iTunes and leave a review and a comment so that more people can learn about the amazing history of Australia at Arms. And remember, if there's any aspect of our military history which you would like to hear about, drop me a line at amhp.media at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Australian Military History Podcast. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.